Well, all right. Tonight we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 8. Now, as we've been going through Leviticus the first couple of weeks, we went through those first seven chapters that deal with the primary five different offerings that all served a different purpose that were unique. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. And we did a couple topicals, as you know, if you've heard the last two Saturdays, on the peace offering. And that was two weeks ago. And then the subdivision of the peace offering was the Thanksgiving offering. And we talked about that and looked at a number of verses last week to just show the connection of singing praises to the Lord and giving thanksgiving. Tonight, as we come to chapter 8, Tuesday night, we taught verse by verse chapters 8, 9, and 10. And this is the consecration and the beginning of the Levitical priesthood and the ministry there with uh, Aaron as the high priest and then his sons assisting him in that priesthood, the, the line of the Kohathites, and then eventually be all the Levites of the tribe of Levi of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the ones set apart for the priesthood. So this is the beginning, like this is the beginning of it all. Like, this is the beginning of all of it, from the Mosaic Covenant of the religious element of the law of God. So the Ten Commandments are the moral law for individuals. The civil law was in the law of God for a nation. You know, perjury, kidnapping, lying, murder, all that kind of stuff. There's laws. And then there's the religious law of how God would be approached and worshipped. And that's what we're studying tonight as we go forward from the offerings, which all speak of Christ, to now the priesthood, the priest who would serve the Lord before the people and serve the people before the Lord. They're mediators. And of course, the high priest was only one who was Aaron, Moses' brother. He's the key person in it all in the religious uh, practices there in the Old Testament in what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. And if you're not aware of this, the Mosaic Covenant is called that because God gave this covenant through Moses at Mount Sinai there in the Sinai Peninsula in the Middle East. And it was about 1500 B.C., and the people agreed to this covenant. So he set aside the nation of Israel to be in a relationship with him after they came out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt to have a covenant with him. Now, we know when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said it's the new covenant. And then he went to the cross and rose from the grave. And we're told it's a new and everlasting covenant. So these things are shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Jesus Christ. And there are no other covenants because we're told that the covenant we have through faith in Jesus Christ, whenever anyone, anywhere, anytime, chooses to receive Christ as Lord and Savior and turn from their sins, they are born again and become part of the new covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. So this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, we're told is a shadow of things to come, and it's pointing toward the future, the fullness of what Jesus would do through his life and ministry and his death on the cross and resurrection. Remember, Jesus said he didn't come to counsel this law of God, but to fulfill it, and he did with his perfect sinless life and then his resurrection which gives us justification before God through faith in him. So with that context, we pick it up in chapter 8. And here in chapter 8, Moses, the Lord through Moses, they make clear to bring Aaron and his sons forward before all the people of Israel. They've got the tabernacle set up where they're in a central place of worship, like the church. They've got the altar there for the animal sacrificial system. And now it all begins. And with this background, we read in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, the anointing oil, a bull as a sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. 
Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, with its tied the ephod on him, and with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him, and he put the urm and the thurm in the breastplate, and he put the turban on his head, which of course says holiness to the Lord. Also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now remember, we studied all this in the Exodus, all the details of what the priestly garment would look like for the priest, and specifically for Aaron, the high priest. Then we read now and now in verse 10. Also Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then Moses brought Aaron's sons and put tunics on them, girded them with sashes and put hats on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, in the rest of this chapter, they do bring the, the bull for the sin offering, for the sins of being sinful nature, Aaron and his sons. Then they brought the two rams and the unleavened bread for the consecration offerings, and that's all in this chapter. And then in chapter 9, God says, I'm going to appear to you and show my glory to you as you do these, fulfill these offerings, and they continue to fulfill these offerings. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the back end of chapter 9, and he consumed the offerings supernaturally before them. So like eternity came into time, space, and matter, and this happened. We also know that Nadab and Abihu, two of the four sons of Aaron, offered uh, an unholy offering, not as God had prescribed, and they actually were struck down because God said, I must be considered holy by those who come before me. And it's, it's one of those great warnings in the Old Testament. Unless people think that that's only how God worked in the Old Testament as far as his holiness and consecration, he did the same thing to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, they too were struck down by the Lord. God is gracious, he's merciful, but he's just and holy, and he must be regarded as holy. That means set apart. So whatever things are true, trustworthy, uh, noble, honorable, and virtuous, those things are the things of the character of God, because God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, we're sinful, but God is not. Every thought that he has is a perfect thought, of justice and love and equity in his universe. And we want to keep that in mind. So even in this story, this is where the process began. But when the week was done, these guys, they violated their responsibility to represent the Lord properly before the people and vice versa. And Nadab and Ahu were struck down. I taught that in detail on Tuesday night. So that's on the verse-by-verse study that will be on the website shortly through um, postings that we have there in the teaching section. But the main focal point tonight is this beginning. Because Aaron is the first of many, many high priests. Again, this is about 1500 B.C. And so Aaron's the first, and then Eleazar, his son, would replace him, and then Ithamar, his grandson. And it just, it just went through this process where even at the time of Christ, there were two high priests because the position became political. Ananias and Caiaphas, who actually were the ones who said crucify Jesus. So that's how far it degenerated from what it was meant to be 1500 years prior. But there's a long succession of high priests for 1,500 years, and we also know that the role of the high priest never fulfilled the uh, atonement completely for forgiveness of sins for the people because every year the high priest had to offer up sins for himself on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then uh, sacrifice for the people's sins. And this went on for 1,500 years. That's, a lo- that's 15 centuries. That's a long time. 
But when Jesus came and died on the cross, he fulfilled what this represented because we're told he's our great high priest. And he didn't just enter the Holy of Holies, but he enters into heaven and ever lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. And we're told in the New Testament he died once for all. So he didn't bring an offering as Aaron the high priest did on Yom Kippur. He brought himself as the offering, and he's the once-for-all offering that replaces all other offerings. And that's why the bull, the goats, and all these other offerings, they don't apply. They don't apply in humanity now at all. They haven't applied since Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. There's no place for animal sacrificial systems because they're all pointing to Jesus and what he would do. And there's no priesthood like this anymore because his priesthood was pointing to Jesus and what he would do as our great high priest who died once for all and ever lives to intercede for us. So what we're looking at here is a shadow of things to come that are fulfilled in the person and the work and the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's what we're seeing here. But in looking at this, there's a lot that we can learn and take to heart. What really gets my attention for tonight's topical and our application in this text is this verse where it says in verse 12 that when this priesthood ministry began, that the oil, the anointing oil, was poured on Aaron's head to anoint him and to consecrate him. I want to draw your attention to those two phrases. And anointed him to consecrate him. The oil was poured on him to anoint him for the priesthood and to consecrate him for this priesthood, which was unique to the other priest, because as I said, he's the high priest. There's only one high priest at a time. When we look at the New Testament and the life of Jesus, and if you even do a word search on the word anointed for English translations from the original Hebrew and Greek, um, we understand in the fullness of Scripture that the the idea of being anointed is very much associated with the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon like people like David or Gideon, but not everybody, and they'd be anointed to do their ministry. They'd be like empowered. They'd be recognized. If you recall when David was anointed to be king by Samuel the prophet, but Saul was still king, when he cut Saul's robe and Saul was trying to kill him, he cut the robe and he, he felt bad because he lifted up his hand against two. The Lord's anointed. The idea of the anointing was an empowerment and a position. And so even as you study the book of Kings and Chronicles with the various Jewish kings that came after Saul and David and Solomon, about 40 kings total over about a 500-year period, including the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom Judah when they were divided after Solomon's death, those kings were considered anointed, that they were God-ordained, that they were anointed and ideally, the great kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, they would have been anointed in the sense that the Holy Spirit was upon them for what they're called to do. So the idea of being anointed is related to the position that God has given someone, anointed, but the empowerment to fulfill that position. And we see that Jesus, prophetically speaking of Jesus in the Old Testament, that he's the anointed one. Messiah, the term Messiah or Jesus Christ, as we say Christ in English, Messiah, it means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. So where Aaron comes incomplete and all the descendants of Aaron of the subtribe of the Kohathites under the Levites, they were anointed, but they were incomplete and they could never do away with sin and the effects of sin on an individual. They could provide a covering of forgiveness, but not a removal. And yet Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, who was prophesied hundreds of times in the Old Testament that when the Christ came, the anointed one, that 
Well, we're told in Isaiah 53, he bore our iniquities on himself. He, he carried them on the cross. And that this anointed one will rule and reign and establish his kingdom on earth. And that's why we know that Jesus has two comings. And of course, he himself said he's coming again. And the Bible makes so clear that Jesus is coming again. And the signs all around us are the very signs that he said would precede his coming. So I have people reach out to me almost on a weekly basis saying, do you think the Lord's coming back? Of course he's coming back. And I told someone today right before service, he's a day sooner than he was yesterday coming back. He's coming back. He said he's coming. He's only coming back once. So, and when he comes back, it changes everything. But all these events are moving toward his return. And he's the anointed one. So the anointing on Aaron was positioned and power to do what he's called to do. Jesus is the son of God. And he, as Aaron was bathed before they, they washed him, think about Jesus. He was baptized by John the Baptist, not because he had sin, but to identify with our sin. And even the water here of washing the priest with water, we, we know that water baptism doesn't save us, but it represents the cleansing that we receive. So even the water part in, uh, back in the early verses prior to this, verse 12, we see that. So Jesus was the anointed one, and then we know that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. The Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came upon him. God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a mystery to it, but just because we don't comprehend it or fully understand it doesn't mean it doesn't change it. God is triune in nature. His universe is triune. Everything around us in the galaxies to the microscopic world is triune. It reflects his glory. And so when Jesus began his ministry, the Holy Spirit came upon him. He didn't perform any miracles that we know of prior to that. But it's at that point that fulfills Isaiah chapter 61 that the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to raise the dead and open the eyes of the blind. He was anointed by the Spirit, so he had the position of the Christ. He's the anointed one. And then the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. Now, he's the Son of God, and he has the power. Fully man, fully God. Son of man, Son of God. Born of the Virgin sinless and perfect in his life but there's a mystery to it but there's a reality and a truth to it theologically that the anointing came upon him of the holy spirit to do the ministry that he did and we're told that it's it's prophesied in the old testament and confirmed in the new testament in the gospels and even the preaching of peter on the day of pentecost how the lord anointed him to do wonderful signs and wonders that's the first message of the church to a broad audience and of course jesus is consecrated There is no other name by which we can be saved. Jesus is the only name. Jesus is the only name. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We can't go through Muhammad or Buddha or a prime minister or a president or anyone of any sort, any great human leader, any great woman or man. The inclusiveness of Christ that whoever should come to me, I will by no means cast out, is for everybody. Because God so loved the world, he gave his son. But the exclusion of Christ is in his person. Jesus said, the New Testament church affirms, and I as minister of the gospel confirm this night, that we can only be saved in Jesus Christ. Because no one else, the blood of bulls and goats won't save us, like these guys here, and confirm in the New Testament and no one can save themselves. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we have a sin offering and a trespass offering in the Old Testament. But Jesus is our sin offering and our trespass offering in the New Testament for those who believe in him. So as many as received Jesus Christ, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Not born of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. So we must be born again. 
And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he said, how can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus said, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we, we have to be born again. And Jesus is consecrated by the Father. The Father loves the Son and commits all judgments to him. The Father loves the Son and has committed all things to him. All things are made by Christ and for Christ, and in him all things consist. And there's nothing made that was made that wasn't made by Jesus Christ. He's the atomic glue holding the universe together right now. Billions of galaxies, billions of stars, billions of cells that make up our body, the uniqueness of all the billions of elements of different DNA in every human being. It's incredible. And Jesus Christ is holding it all together. So he's the anointed one from the dawn of creation, Genesis 3.15, promised to come to redeem humanity all the way to his revelation where he comes in glory and the kingdom is established. He's the anointed one, prophetically speaking in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the Gospels, in the New Testament, and proclaimed and preached in the New Testament after Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's the consecrated one because there's no one else can do it. He, he's the one that's from Israel, descendant of Abraham. He's the one that's from Jacob. He's the one that's from the tribe of Judah. He's the one from the house of David a thousand years after all those things. He is the one of the line through Mary, the virgin. He's the one. Jesus said, you search the scriptures and then you think they have life. You find life. This is what he said to the Pharisees who rejected him. But they are that which declare me to you. Jesus tonight, worship generation, body of Christ. July 25th, 2020, I tell you. Aaron was anointed and consecrated in the Old Testament as a high priest. But he can't save us. And that's all gone and obsolete. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah Christ, who has provided a way to save all of us. And he's the consecrated one and the only one that can save us. And so we find ourselves in this day and age where there's much opposition to the gospel, to people standing for the gospel, and all the truth that's surrounding the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it's important to be reminded tonight that Jesus Christ is the anointed one and the consecrated one for our salvation. And we can have this eternal life if we're willing to turn of our sins, to repent, and ask Christ into our life. It's like Zacchaeus. When he had dinner with Jesus, he's like, oh my goodness, I, I need to be saved. He's like, Lord, look, I give back all the money I stole, and if I wrong someone, I'll give fourfold. And, and it, Jesus said, see, today salvation has come to this son of Abraham. That's what it is. It's the book of Acts. When Philip's there in the desert, and here comes Ethiopian in the chariot, reading Isaiah 53, and Philip runs alongside him and says, hey, do you understand? He goes, no, I don't. How can I? Someone doesn't explain it to me. And beginning of that scripture, Philip explains to the Ethiopian that Isaiah 53 is speaking of Jesus, and the Ethiopian says, well, wow, this is amazing. I believe this, and there's water, so what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. Do you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? I do. And they got off the chariot, and he baptized them. You can have that faith tonight. Maybe you're watching me tonight, right now, live stream, or even outside in the courtyard here, and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. There's a flashpoint where we make that decision to receive Christ. As many as received him, if you've never asked Jesus into your life, he's the anointed one, he's the consecrated one that, that surpasses this and was foreshadowed in this but replaces this. And there's no other. And I invite you to just say a simple prayer to receive Christ into your heart tonight. Ask him to forgive you your sins and ask him to come into your life. Send us an email 
right there on our website. If you're watching us, you can go on our website and send us something. Let us know. We'll be happy to follow up with you and encourage you. I believe God wants to do a great work saving people for such a time as this. The trumpet's getting ready to sound. And I think most people sense that the whole world is on the edge of something, on the cusp of something. Well, we've never seen anything like this. And we're moving toward all these things that the Bible said. And we want to be saved in the happiest of days. We want to be saved in the darkest of days. And we want to be saved on any day in between. So July 25th, 2020, was like July 25th, 2019, I'd still have the same urgency. I've watched a lot of people step into eternity in the last year, since the 25th of July last year. But we are definitely on the cusp of events that we've never seen in human history. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. And reading 2 Thessalonians today, where it says that the spirit of Antichrist is at work, and it's a spirit of lawlessness, because the Antichrist is lawless, that's coming, who will rule the world and eliminate cash currency and uh, cashless society and control everybody and control what they can eat, what they can think, what they can do, thought police, all that kind of stuff. And he has to be worshipped. And just even now as Christians in China who can't receive government aid because they're completely dependent on the government. Unless they renounce their faith, they can't eat. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. It's a foreshadow. And lawlessness increases as he prepares to come. And the love of people become cold. And people become callous. And they become where they're not able to discern right and wrong. And they get farther and farther of, the, of a parameter of knowing right from wrong till they're completely lost. And thus we're told in 2 Thessalonians that when the Antichrist is revealed... They're given over to delusion to embrace him and love him and worship him as God. And they're not possible to be saved and believe in Jesus because they love the lie more than the truth. And I must say right now, I've been on this planet almost 60 years, more people than ever before love a lie than truth in this planet right now and even in this country. Truth has become falsehood to those who seek to destroy it and falsehood has become truth to those who seek to propagate it. Good is evil, and evil is good. And so you, we need to think about where we're at in such a time as this. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the consecrated one. And we're told, actually, in Psalm chapter 2, a prophecy of Jesus, it says, He's the anointed one. Kiss the son and bear homage, the anointed one, lest he destroy you in his wrath when he comes. We live in a very uncertain time. But I suppose every generation has uncertainty, but Jesus will always be our certainty because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And with that in mind, a couple final thoughts on this. Aaron had his role. Jesus fulfills this ultimately. But then there's something to think about for us because I've been thinking a lot about the church of Jesus Christ lately. Obviously, I'm a pastor during an unusual time. I'm in here. You're out there. I'm trying to get out there by next week. And it's just, it's insanity. You just can't make the stuff up that we're seeing. And so I'm thinking a lot about the church. I'm thinking about what Raul Reese is saying every day uh, online. I'm thinking what, or, you know, through social media. I'm thinking what Jeff Johnson is saying. Uh, Skip Heise, Greg Laurie, just what are they doing? And these leaders in the Calvary movement, and I'm paying attention and, and thinking about what they're, what they're saying, what they're, people I love and respect in ministry, like Garrett Beeler, Brian Broderson. I'm looking at all these different people and, what, what are they saying? And, you know, people are adjusting their church service times because they're outdoors. And it's, oh, there's, it's like it's a free-for-all. So let's think about this. Until I heard Pastor Jeff Johnson from Calvary Downey say something a week ago, I cannot think of anyone except maybe Greg Laurie even implying this 
throughout the last four months. And it really hit me that a lot of humanity is on their heels going in reverse with fear and anxiety, which is pretty obvious. But the church as well. And I, I've been preaching the last couple of weeks about not having a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. God has not given a spirit of fear, but love, power, and sound mind. But in the last three, four months, what I've thought a lot of you are talking about in the church is how we stay open or um, what kind of legal aid we need to make sure we can stay open if we get sued, how we can justify that and all this stuff. Well, you know, who knows how things will play out in court. And, um, you know, there's good judges and bad judges, right? You never know how that's going to play out. But it's always the right time to do the right thing, like Martin Luther King Jr. said. And it's always the right time to do the right thing. And the right things for the church are the right things. And Pastor Jeff Johnson said something last week that really got my attention. So, escuchame. Listen to me. Por favor, please. Very calm, he said. He read Acts chapter 2 and explained that on the day of Pentecost, the church was birthed. And he, he went through what the church did after the day of Pentecost. They gathered together. They broke bread. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship. They got together and they lived life. They were relational and they shared the human experience. And that's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years where the communists are in power, the Marxists or the globalists that are coming, or favorable governments or disfavorable governments, the Church of Jesus Christ is interdependent. And we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. And as I've seen a spirit of fear and anxiety come upon the planet, everybody, and upon the church specifically, we see people living in fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of fear even. And Jeff Johnson simply explained, this is what was so profound, that we have to come together because God calls us to come together. And there's not unless there's COVID or unless there's the Black Plague or Spanish. So he says, you come together. You know, I give a soft land and say, you don't feel comfortable coming out, don't come out. I can say that, and I can somewhat mean it. But I've been in ministry for 30 years. If you don't want to go to church, it's not hard to find reasons not to come to church. And COVID's a really good one if you're just hanging on by a thread. And we've seen a mass exodus from churches in the last four months all over the planet. Every church has probably lost about 30% of its congregation because it's just hanging on by a thread. And if it's not football season, an excuse not to come to church, which Pastor Chuck used to always talk about, it can be COVID-19. You don't want to come to church? Don't come to church. We are invincible until God says he's done with us. Now, I'm not going to test the Lord, but this, isn't, this is the only plague where you've got to be tested to know you have it in most cases. Like, seriously, enough is enough. So you have to ask yourself, do you fear God or do you fear evil? Because God's been around through everything. And honestly, if I'm meant to go in November and I drop dead from COVID, good for me. And you guys can figure out who's going to pastor this church. But I'm not going to live in fear and I'm not going to retract from fellowship. Because what Pastor Jeff Johnson pointed out is in this retraction from fellowship and trying to hold on to things in the strength of man, we've forgotten what we exist for, to build up one another and go out and preach the gospel. And it was the first message, apart from Greg Laurie, related to the Easter service with the President Trump and Phil Wickham and all that, that I really have seen someone say, hey, it's not just about trying to come together that we can sing to the Lord, no one tells us we can't sing to the Lord. It's about we come together because who we are, and we are called to fulfill the Great Commission. And it seems like we've all lost sight of that because we're afraid of the boogeyman, the invisible boogeyman, who's asymptomatic. Enough is enough. That's... That's my worldview right now. And I believe I have the mind of the Lord. And I agree with Jeff Johnson. He just said, we got to be the church. And 
Are we going to try and appease men who hate God and are trying to extinguish the church? Or are we going to try and obey God and be faithful to who we are as shepherds in the church? That's the question we have to ask ourselves in leadership. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ in 2020 on planet Earth. That's what we have to ask ourselves. It's not hard. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the consecrated one. And the church is meant to come together. And if you want to come together, come together at your church, here or down the road or anywhere. And if you don't feel comfortable going to church, ask yourself why. And if you have peace in your heart not to go to church, then don't go to church. But I think there's a lot of people I'm going to church because they're afraid, afraid of the boogeyman. And I'm not going to retract this. I haven't retracted one thing I've said in four months, and I've held my peace. I'm speaking it right now. I'm not retracting anything. And I believe I have the mind of the Lord. Because we're the church, and we're not to forsake this of ourselves. And not only that, we're supposed to stir up one another for the Great Commission. And the devil's watching the church in America retract from stirring up and attending and building up one another and worried about this and that and appeasing Caesar, in most cases, could care less who we are and rules against us anyways. And we've forgotten what the real purpose is, the Great Commission, for people to get saved. We cannot do that. It's a time for faith, conviction, and courage. Because what do you see in Revelation? I'll tell you what you don't see. Cowards. Because cowards are outside the heavenly city. And I don't want my life to be a legacy of being a coward because I'm afraid of the boogeyman I can't see who's asymptomatic. Enough is enough. We've got to be the church. And we got to, it's iron sharpens iron. We've got to sharpen one another. We serve the anointed, consecrated one, God of the universe. And he died on the cross so we'd be bold as lions, not cowardly, but to be bold as lions. A lion is word who can but speak, the prophet Amos said. And it's a time for boldness. And for conviction and character, that's what a time is, which brings us to our anointing and our consecration. And thank you, Pastor Jeff, for speaking truth with conviction, simplicity, love, and humility. Now, there's an anointing on us, and there's a, a, consa, a consecration for us. Since each of us is individually and wonderfully made, we're all unique. David said in Psalm 139, you may be a mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, unique to DNA. That's, by the way, why we value the unborn. We value the unborn because each unborn human being is unique. Their DNA, there's no one like them. And we're unique. There's no one like us. Even if you're twins, you know, I've known plenty of twins. They might be similar and have a little thing going, you know, like, but it's still, they're, they're different. Well, we have an anointing of the Holy Spirit upon every believer that gives their life to Christ. We have access to an empowerment, just like Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. We are told to seek this power. We are told to function in this power. We are told to overflow in this power. And we are told to be baptized in this power and to witness for Jesus Christ in this power of anointing. When we come to Christ, we have been given a position as a follower of Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're giving the empowerment and the anointing to fulfill everything God wants to do in our life in an in internal character, in outward conduct, and in boldness and advancement of the Great Commission, which is what it's all about. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, now we're born again to the Spirit, so the Spirit comes in us when we give our life to Christ, to be truly born again. And we gain the mind of Christ, we begin to think like Christ, we're like, oh my goodness, like, it's like the light's on in somebody's home, spiritually. That's the end. So we're told in the Greek that the Holy Spirit is with us. He's in the world 
And for non-believers, when they're fighting God, when I shared in Carlsbad last week at the paddle out and shared the gospel, somebody a few days later said something really nasty about me to someone else. And they're like, what are you doing that for? They were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Like, I was as gracious as possible, and they were upset about it three days later, complained about me to someone else in Carlsbad. That's actually a good sign. What was going on there is the Holy Spirit's with him, para. He's outside of that person's soul, but he's convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, which is what the Holy Spirit does to a non-believer. He's para. He's with us, and he's, he's convicting because the Word of God pierces bone and marrow, soul, and spirit. And so as I shared the gospel on the beach in Carlsbad at Chestnut Street a week ago, and I shared the gospel, someone didn't like that. And days later, they're still upset about it. Well, that's good because the Holy Spirit's convicting them of their sin, God's righteousness, in Christ and the judgment of Satan to come. And if they're still upset with Joy Brand three days later, it's a really good sign. That person's close to being saved because they're under that conviction. Holy Spirit, para. He's in the world. He's with us to bring us to a relationship so he can be N-E-N in us. But then we're told to seek after the epi, the upon, or what is often called the filling of the Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is our anointing. This is anointing that makes you stand with courage and conviction when everyone else is bowing the knee as cowards. This is the anointing we need that we need to have in these last days and in our timeline in any generation, but particularly these difficult days. We need the epi. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to come upon us. And Jesus promised he would. He said to seek, knock, and ask in Luke chapter 11. And how much more will our Father give you the Holy Spirit when you ask for it? Now, we receive the Holy Spirit unilaterally when we give our life to Christ. So if we're told to ask for something beyond that measure, that there's more to get, we should get it. I mean, do you want to drive around with a car that's got a quarter tank, or do you want to drive around with a car with a full tank? See, that's what the baptism is. It's a full coming upon, just flowing in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the one who comes to me from forth, coming forth from them will come torrents of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, the overflowing. You can be born again, and you can be sour and grim and negative and terrified in your room right now and still be born again. And you still have the Spirit of God in you. And whatever's going on between you and the Lord, that's your business. Or you can be epi, you can be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you can be changing the world. And not in retraction, in fear, and anxiety, but going forward in boldness and faith with Jesus Christ for such a time as this, July 25th, 2020. And you have to decide, live in fear by the flesh, or be baptized in the Holy Spirit and change the world for such a time as this. That's what we have to decide tonight, Body of Christ, WG. Which one is going to be? Live in fear? The asymptomatic boogeyman? Or live in confidence, the living God, with tongues of fire over your head. Because Jesus said, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He says, tarry in Jerusalem until it comes to you. And when he came upon him, them, Peter's just like, what is up? Like Peter, these guys threatened his life. He's scared of these people. He's just like preaching like there's no tomorrow. He's quoting Joel the prophet. Your young men will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young women will prophesy. It's like he's bringing it. That's what we need right now. The only thing that matters, July 25th, is to have the anointing of the Lord upon your life and my life, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be courageous and to be women and men of conviction and character and not live in fear. That's the anointing. And then there's the consecration. That consecration is our calling. Jesus was the only Messiah. 
Aaron was the only high priest. And you are the only you. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, you are his workmanship created before time began for his workmanship. He's made you for a specific work of art that no one else can fulfill. You know, every one of us is alive. Bobby, Danny, Anthony, Ryland in here, Fred upstairs, or six of us in the sanctuary. We're all so unique and different, as is everybody out here in the green belt, anyone listening to me. We were made to live in this timeline, Acts 17. We're made who we're meant to be, and there's a purpose in it. And think how few people really fulfill their consecration of their life. I mean, so few people really fulfill it. Like it's a narrow gate to get saved in the first place. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. Few enter thereby. Wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction. destruction. Wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction. And many go thereby. But narrow is the gate that leads to life. But how many people go through the gate that leads to life and don't really fulfill what they're meant to be? Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. There's different soils. Like it can wilt under the heat. It can be choked out by cares of this life, or you can produce 30, 60, 100 fold. That's who we want to be in our consecration because we're his workmanship. And I can't be the work of art you're meant to be for all eternity. The God who makes these galaxies and these stars by the billions, the comet going by us right now, that's nothing compared to your glory in eternity with Jesus Christ. Because humanity is the crown jewel of the whole universe. And all these things declare the Lord to us. The heavens declare his glory to us that we can put our trust in him and enter into his plan here in time, space, and matter to be ready and prepare for what he has for us in all eternity when we're glorified with him in his glory. All this that we see, it's nothing compared to the glory to come, the new heaven and new earth where we rule and reign with him. We are consecrated for greatness in the baptism and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got one light to fulfill it. So maybe it's 21 years like Melissa Henning Camp. Maybe it's 10 years like Trinity Jameson. Or maybe it's 99 years like Billy Graham. But you only get one. There's no redos. We're consecrated for one life with one chance to be the work of art with the good, the bad, and the ugly that however the journey brings us in our personal life and in the timeline that we live in. We get one chance. Paul, when he wrote Timothy, he said not to neglect the gift of dying, that is, Paul is about to die. He said, stir up the gift that is in you, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and sound mind. The preceding verse is to stir up the gift that's in us. So I close tonight, worship generation, body of Christ, to remind us that even as Jesus, as Aaron was the anointed and the consecrated one, foreshadowing Christ, and Jesus is the only anointed and consecrated one for our salvation, yet through faith in Jesus Christ and being born to his family, we are the anointed and consecrated ones to fulfill the purposes God has for us in our timeline. And here we are, planet Earth, July 25th, 2020. And it's, it's, us, it's up to us to embrace the calling and to pursue it with everything we have. And whatever we've missed before this day, it's behind us. But whatever is available to us today, God is a God of today. And it's right here and now, and it's in front of us. So I, I close by encouraging us not to retract in fear in the dark day, but to rise in courage and conviction, knowing that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's the king and he's coming. And until he comes, he's working. And there's a work to finish in each one of us and together here in the body of Christ, part of the universal church for such a time as this.